Hello and welcome to the Europeans podcast coming to you from Groningen this week where my husband is for work and I'm crashing his hotel for a night to see him. I think I've reached peak romantic in my relationship after crossing the country to visit him for the first time in two weeks and then immediately asking him to leave the room as it's podcast recording time. <laughs> so beautiful and romantic. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah, thanks. Sorry. How are you? Where are you? I'm in Paris and it's very hot here and it's election season again. You might have thought we were done with that after we re-elected Macron last month, but we're not done. We're electing a new parliament here in France, um, which is a fun opportunity for me to geek out over my first time voting a two-round parliamentary election. Fun times. Yeah, I really don't understand how this two-round parliamentary election works, and we probably don't have time for you to explain it to me. But it <laughs> Let's not get into seems it. seems really confusing. It is confusing, but also really fun. And the most important thing to remember is that in France, when you vote, you get a little stamp on your voting card, and it makes you feel like a child in school getting a gold star for doing something good. It's very satisfying. Um, anyway... France aside, what have we got coming up this week? Well, this week we're going to be talking about a topic we've been wanting to discuss for a long time now, and we're finally getting around to it. It's the topic of multi-parenting families, families often with LGBTQ plus parents who decide to co-parent with more than two parents. Now, these kinds of families are becoming more and more common in certain parts of Europe, and particularly in the Netherlands. And whilst it's becoming more common, that doesn't mean that the law has caught up with recognizing families with more than two parents. That could all be about to change as the Dutch coalition government are expected to offer up a new multi-parenthood law as part of a broader package of bills which should make life easier for rainbow families and prospective rainbow families. And we've got the perfect person to speak to us about this topic. Remco Yitzhak Koremans is the chairman of the Dutch Foundation for Rainbow Families, Meer dan Gewenst. That's coming up later on in the show. But first, it's time to have a look at who's had a good week and who's had a bad week. Who's had a good week, Katie? Well, I can't tell you if it's been a good week for the EU or not, because at the time of recording, we are waiting to see if Ukraine has been granted EU candidate status or not. But I can give the EU good week for progress on a completely different issue, and that is the minimum wage. There was a deal reached last week under which EU countries will have to have minimum wages that ensure a decent standard of living. That sounds very nice. It does, doesn't it? Um, really basic question, but this isn't a plan to bring in the same rate of minimum wage across the whole of the EU, is it? No, it's not. So the idea isn't to say, you know, regardless of whether you work in Romania or Sweden, everyone's going to get at least, I don't know, 10 euros an hour or the equivalent in local currencies. Some people do want that to happen, a single minimum wage across the EU. Honestly, I don't know what it would do to the bloc's economy, because as you probably know already, there's really sharp disparities across the EU in people's wages and generally how much stuff costs. Uh, so for example, Luxembourg has by far the highest minimum wage in the EU right now. It's 13 euros and five cents an hour. And that goes all the way down to just two euros and 19 cents an hour in Bulgaria. Wow. So there's masses of variation across Europe. And that'll still probably be the case after this law comes in. The minimum wage will still be set nationally. The thing that's changing is that countries will have to ensure that whatever their minimum wage is, it has to be enough to actually allow people to live a dignified life and pay for the food they need and a roof over their heads. And it might sound like that should be the case already. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, 
a government that brings in a minimum wage, they might pat themselves on the back and say, aren't we great? We protected workers by bringing this law in. But depending on how that law is written, a government might not be obliged to keep raising the minimum wage in line with inflation year after year. And as it stands, the EU says that 22 countries out of the 27 are currently failing the test of providing a minimum wage that is decent enough to actually live on properly. And so does this new law force governments to continue raising the minimum wage in line with inflation? Uh, It's not quite that, but kind of. So countries will be allowed to choose how they do this. But either they'll have to pick a list of items and services that people commonly buy, and they'll have to make sure every few years that people can still afford to pay for these things on the minimum wage, or they can measure it a different way. And they can make sure that the minimum wage is at least 60% of the median wage or 50% of the mean wage. And that's where it gets kind of interesting, because if you link the minimum wage to the average wage, it also helps to make sure that you don't have growing income inequality in your country. Uh, It's just a random example, but I was reading uh, the reaction to this in the Lithuanian media. And over there, the minimum wage is currently only 48% of what the average person makes. So once this new rule is enforced, it'll narrow that gap between rich and poor, even if it's just by a little bit. Does every EU country already have some kind of minimum wage in place? You know, they don't. And that's something I actually learned while reading about all of this. 21 out of the 27 countries do. Six do not. They are Austria, Cyprus, Denmark, Finland, Italy and Sweden. Whoa. Some of those countries are countries that have like quite a great reputation for the social safety net. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So in these countries, they mostly do collective bargaining, which is basically trade unions negotiating with management how workers should be paid across like a whole sector, you know, like the restaurant industry or fishing or whatever. And uh, as you say, I think you were surprised by probably hearing Denmark and Sweden included there. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily worse than having a minimum wage using this collective bargaining method in Sweden and Denmark. The average wage is pretty high and people's pay across the country is relatively equal compared to some other European countries. And actually, those two governments kicked up quite a big fuss about this minimum wage plan. They said, we absolutely do not want to have a minimum wage in Sweden or Denmark. It is a threat to our whole system of industrial relations. And in the end, none of these six countries are going to be forced to bring in a minimum wage. They're just going to be told to strengthen their collective bargaining systems. But in Italy, for example, which is another one of those countries without a minimum wage, there is a growing campaign to bring one in because collective bargaining hasn't given Italians those Swedish-style high wages. A third of the Italian workforce makes less than €9 an hour. People's wages really, really haven't kept up with inflation. Uh, Italy had the biggest wage drop in the EU last year. So there's a lot of people in Italy who maybe would have liked the government to be forced by this new law to bring in a minimum wage, but that isn't going to happen. Okay, so it sounds like it might not directly help the situation in Italy, but more broadly, do you think this is going to help address the cost of living crisis? Well, it is eventually going to lead to higher wages for a lot of people. And in some places, maybe quite a big jump in the wages. Uh, In Belgium, for example, I was reading that it's probably going to need to go up by about €174 a month to be in line with the new rules, which is a good chunk of extra cash. Yeah. It isn't a done deal yet. This plan still needs to go through a vote in the European Parliament and among the national governments. And even if it gets signed off this month, governments would have two years to implement this thing. So it's not going to give immediate relief to people who are really struggling right now. But is it a good thing long term? I think it is. Uh, We've known for a really, really long time that people's pay has not been keeping up with inflation. That is true of you and me and millions of other people who live on this continent. And I do think it's a good thing to bring in a system that says 
minimum wages don't just have to exist. They have to actually put an end to the situation where people can be working full time but still be living in poverty, which is crazy. It's also just been really interesting this week to watch the EU put this forward. If you take a step back and you look at it, we're now so far from the early idea of the EU as a club of countries that just want to trade with each other. It's really this idea of a social Europe, which some people really hate, some people really love. But either way, it feels quite big to see the EU making laws about this kind of thing. Hmm. You sound just like Michael Barbaro. <laughs> Apologies. Who has had a bad week? It's been a bad week for the municipal authorities and politicians of the Italian city of Rome after a group of residents sent a letter to the chief of UNESCO, the United Nations Heritage Agency, asking them to step in and persuade the authorities to do more to deal with the bad state of rubbish and just general rundownness of this historic city. Yeah, I've seen some of the pictures of this rubbish and I have to say it looks really pretty bad. Yeah, some of the photos of like overflowing bins and roads just full of trash are really shocking. I read a piece in Euronews where one local resident describes the area of Prati near the Vatican as being like an open air landfill, which aren't most landfills open air. Oh yeah, good point. (laughs) Anyway, wild boar have also become more and more common in the city thanks to all the uncollected trash that's around for them to nosh on. It goes without saying that having wild boar in a city centre isn't ideal. Um, In rare cases, they can decide to attack humans. Remember Shakira got attacked in Barcelona a few years ago? How could I forget? And guess what? There is yet another highly contagious viral disease which has started showing up in the wild boar community in northern Italy, African swine fever. And while Whilst it doesn't pose a risk to humans, it does pose a risk to farm animals. So to summarise, having wild boar all over the city isn't a good idea. I mean, I visited Rome a couple of years ago and I don't remember things being especially bad on this front. Is, Is this a fairly new problem? It's not a very new thing. Rome has always struggled a bit with trash, but things have got quite bad in the last few years. There are a number of potential arguments for why Rome has such difficulty keeping itself clean. Um, One big thing is that Rome had a rather notorious landfill, which was forced to close in 2013 due to breaking European environmental standards. And since then, there have been problems with replacing that and getting the trash out of the city. Some of it actually now ends up being exported to neighbouring countries. Mm. There's also a lot of criticism about how the garbage removal service are managed. Centrist opposition politicians, of course, are blaming the unions for having too much power. And there is also a problem of a fleet of rusty old lorries that really need replacing. I was interested to discover through my reading that trash is actually a really big political issue when elections come around in Rome. In fact, things got so messy, both literally and politically, that there were allegations from senior local officials before the last mayoral election that residents who were opposed to the incumbent mayor were deliberately trashing the city to make things seem even worse than they were in the run-up to the election and make her seem ineffectual. It's like a literal smear campaign, smearing rubbish everywhere. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you whether or not that was true, but that Mayor Virginia Raji lost her re-election bid in 2021. I don't think simply due to all the trash piles, she ended up being generally quite unpopular, but her successor Roberto Gualtieri of the Social Democrats did win his election in October last year with a promise to give the city an extraordinary cleanup by Christmas. And that extraordinary cleanup seems to have not been so extraordinary after all. But mm. Rome's environment councillor did defend their policies, saying that Rome is cleaner than it was when they took over in 2021 and that 2,000 extra tons of garbage are being collected each week. The mayor himself has also responded to recent criticism by promising to employ 655 more rubbish collectors, 155 of whom will start already in June. They are also setting up a committee for guaranteeing decorum, which sounds very Jane Austen to me, but I'm sure it's well-meaning. It sounds like school are going to make everyone tuck their shirts in. Absolutely, and do your tie-up properly. He also wants to build a huge waste-to-energy plant with capacity for some 650,000 tonnes of waste. It also sounds like there are some pretty epic grassroots initiatives from locals who were just fed up with the authorities not getting it sorted and started to organise cleanups themselves. So well done, locals, for doing your bit. Well, from one very grubby city, uh, Paris, to another, solidarity with the Romans. But the original letter was written to UNESCO, right? Yeah. And this is like the UN cultural body. Do they actually have any power to do anything if like nothing gets done? Well, I think to say that they have any power is probably to overstate it, but they can place pressure on Rome and they could potentially embarrass the city authorities. Um, This is because Rome's entire 20 square kilometers of historic city center has this coveted World Heritage Site status from UNESCO. And with that status, the area is designated a protected zone. I don't know if UNESCO would ever do something like this due to trash, but they do have the power to designate World Heritage Sites to a list of World Heritage Sites in danger if the area's unique cultural characteristics are threatened. Mainly endangered sites are places that are threatened by conflict and war, climate change, natural disasters and pollution. There was actually a relatively recent example of UNESCO embarrassing a European capital city when they added Vienna to the list of World Heritage Sites in danger due to some plans for a high-rise complex in the heart of the Heritage Centre, which they said would impact adversely the outstanding universal value of the site. Mm. So UNESCO haven't replied yet at the time of recording, as far as I know, but we'll see where this goes. In the meantime, there have also been quite a few stories popping up of tourists behaving pretty badly in Rome and in the worst cases, causing quite serious damage to the city. The most striking story was from the past week when a tourist from the US was filmed in the early hours of the morning dropping her electric scooter down the Spanish steps, causing a stonking 25,000 euros worth of damage to the famous stairs. What? Yeah, it's pretty bad. And she and her companion were fined 400 euros each, which is not going to cover the repairs, but I imagine they left feeling pretty bad about it. Um, There's also the problem of drones around historic sites, which is not a problem that's exclusive to Rome. They do actually have strict no-fly zones in the centre for drones. And two weeks ago, one Argentinian man was fined for breaking that no-fly zone and crashing his drone into the roof of the 15th century Piazza Venezia. Oh, my God. So, yeah, 
Taken together, Rome sounds like it's not in the best state right now. And I understand why this letter was written to UNESCO. I guess a lot of touristy cities have been struggling since everything opened up again after months and months of lockdown. Mm. I know I'm noticing the problem of overpacked central Amsterdam more than I did before the lockdowns because I saw just how nice it was when there was hardly anyone here. Have you had a similar experience in Paris? Yeah, people are definitely back, but it's kind of nice so far. Paris is a super densely populated city anyway, so we're used to it being packed. And I've got to say, it feels kind of like fun and buzzy that you can hear so many languages around. Um, Ask me in two to three weeks' time and (laughs) maybe I'll have changed my mind. Okay, I will. But in the meantime, we'll keep you posted if UNESCO responds. Follow us on Twitter at EuropeansPod for all updates on your European wild boar and trash news. Let me attempt an awkward segue. You know what's not rubbish is the generous people who have signed up to support this podcast this week. That was good, wasn't it? Yeah, great. A huge thank you goes to Karen Oakley and Landon DeFisser, who are the latest really, really kind listeners to throw a little bit of money our way so that we can keep making this podcast. Thank you both. We are still here podcasting over four and a half years into birthing this pod baby. And it's largely thanks to the support of these lovely people who are giving us money voluntarily each month to keep us going. So thank you all so much. And if you feel like maybe considering joining them, then why not make it this week? Head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast, where you can donate as little as two euros a month and keep this podcast up and running. You could also donate two or three hundred a month if you fancied it. Yes. Oh yeah, good idea. Maybe those Luxembourgers with their really high minimum wage. Yeah. For this week's interview, we are turning our attention to really interesting plans in the Netherlands for a new law that is going to be designed to address the fact that an increasing number of kids are growing up with more than two parents. Quite often in circumstances where there's a same-sex couple who've decided to start a family by teaming up with a friend of the opposite sex, but not always. And uh, Dominic, I think you have some really good friends who parent like this, right? Yeah, I do. And I see how well it can work up close, but also how difficult it can be um, legally, because officially, amongst my friends who are parenting with the three of them, officially one of them, even if they are actually a biological parent of one or two of the kids, they have no rights over their child. They are not seen as a parent. Yeah. I should also uh, straight up declare my own personal interest in wanting this bill passed, not only because of my friends, but also as a gay man living in the Netherlands who might, who knows, one day want to start a family here. I am absolutely not neutral on this topic, and I'm sorry I can't pretend to be. Forgive me. No forgiveness needed. Um, Someone who speaks really passionately about why the law needs to change is Remco Yitzhak Gormans. He is the chairman of a foundation called Merdan Gewenst, which loosely translates as more than desired, I think, uh, meaning basically children that are more than wanted. It's hard to translate, okay? Anyway, Remco has been campaigning for the family laws in the Netherlands to be modernised for years. And he speaks about this issue exceptionally well, so we were delighted to speak to him this week.
I was thinking maybe it would be nice to start if you could tell us a bit about your own story of starting a family with your husband and how you as a family have navigated the family laws in the Netherlands. Right. That's a big one. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, first of all, I came out of the closet, as they call it, at a very young age. I was about 16. I do remember vividly that my father said on that very evening, I really mourn the fact that you're not going to have kids as a gay man. And they were absolutely loving, you know, towards me and all of that. But I do remember him saying that. Of course, you know, as a 16-year-old, I, I wasn't actually contemplating having kids anytime soon. I just wanted to find a nice person and explore life. And I did. And I met my husband a couple of years later in London. And then we, you know, moved in together. It was all very traditional, you know. And then we actually got married as well uh, in 2007 in the Netherlands because we could. I was around 30 years old at the time that I started to contemplate, you know, my husband as well, how are we going to do this? Because we both wanted to have kids badly. We were raised in loving families and we wanted to have the same for ourselves in the future. And so the initial thought that we had was adoption because we simply didn't know how to do this. We had no examples in our, you know, amongst friends or family. And adoption was what I thought was possible for us. So we were in the UK at the time, we were living in London. And there were lots of kids in Britain looking uh, for adoptive parents at the time. But we immediately recognized that as an international couple, because I'm Dutch and my husband is also not, uh, not British, that it wouldn't be in the best interest of the kids to be away from the biological parents, you know, being in some other part of the world because we were envisaging a life elsewhere at some point. And then funny enough, one of our friends, a single woman in a big city, uh, couldn't find a man uh, for many years. And she said, why don't we co-parent? So that's how it started, really. And we tried that. But unfortunately, after one and a half years, that didn't work. And we were gutted. And then friends of ours introduced us to the whole world of surrogacy. And this is how, in the end, we managed to realize our dream. We found a wonderful surrogate mum. One of our sisters was the egg donor. So we had a kid in 2011. His name is Tommy. And he's our baby. And we love him. So we lived for many years in Israel, where my husband is from. And then we came to Holland. And this is where the whole family law thing hit me in the face. Because we'd done everything properly at the time of Tommy's conception and birth. We'd gone to court. We were his parents from birth in Israel. But then we arrived in Holland and the municipality here in Amsterdam, they just told me bluntly, I don't care for all these documents, all these adoption papers that you have. You are not the parents to this child. And my life was destroyed, like within an instant. And I decided once I sort of recuperated that, you know, this had to change. So I joined this organization, Mirdan Gewenst, which is uh, where I'm now chairman. And we strive for equal rights for rainbow families. That sounds like a really awful situation to suddenly not legally be the parent of your child. What are some of the difficulties you encountered because of that legal incompatibility? Some of the, the practical difficulties that we ran into, and quite frankly, you see that with any rainbow family or any type of family setup, which is different from the norm, from the traditional husband and wife who have kids. So it doesn't really matter if it's a multi-parent family or if it's surrogacy that you've done. The issue is legal parenting and custody. So we weren't the legal parents and we didn't have custody over our own child in Holland, mind you. We did have it in other countries. And therefore, I wasn't able to get my son a health insurance. I wasn't able to get a social security number. And at the same time, multi-parent families, they have a similar situation because a maximum of two of the parents can be legal parents and therefore recognized by the state. And a maximum of two people can have custody. 
So there's always one or maximum of two, if there's four co-parents, who are left out as such. So the practical difficulties for these families are things like, officially, you can't even pick up your kid from school if you don't have custody over the kid. You can be asked by a doctor, I'm sorry, but I can't help you with these medical issues because you don't have custody. Friends of mine uh, who are co-parenting, two dads with a single mum who's straight, but one of the dads who doesn't have custody, you know, he was with his son on the football pitch when his son twisted his ankle. They ended up in hospital and the doctor said, can you please fetch one of the other parents? And of course that was possible, but it's a slap in your face as a parent. And how are you going to explain that to the kid? I mean, it's a practical, but it's also an emotional and ethical issue. This is why we're striving for a multi-parent law so that all parents have equal rights in the interest of the kids. So there is a new law coming in the Netherlands, it looks like. Right. Can you explain to us how that new law is going to work? Multi-parent families exist, okay? So there can be all sorts of different setups. There can be up to three or four parents. So sometimes you've got a gay couple co-parenting with a single woman. Other times there's a lesbian couple co-parenting with a single man or even with another gay couple. There's also straight people doing this. The way it's going to be set up is very similar to what we as an organization already advise people doing it now is first of all, you have to meet, right? Okay, so you have to meet your future co-parents. And when you do, you discuss all sorts of scenarios, like how do we envisage this? What will be the division of, uh, of duties, you know, taking care of the kids, where the kid's going to be living, which schools are they going to go to? What do we do in case of a conflict? So that is actually part of the new law as well. So people go to a counselor, a specialized counselor, they get a family lawyer, and they sign up on an agreement that they have to go through with all these scenarios. Under the new law, preconception, so even before they try to, to get pregnant effectively, they go to court and then a special advocate for the kid will be assigned by the court as well, arguing the interests of the kids. And then the judge or the chamber will actually issue a verdict so that the parents will be legal parents and have custody at the moment the children are born. And it's maximum four parents, right, at the moment? Absolutely right. Will all these parents have an equal status or is there some kind of hierarchy maybe for the biological parents, for example? No, absolutely no hierarchy. And all parents have equal rights, which is in the interest of the children. Mind you, for the kids, this is their actual situation. They grow up with whichever constellation. They have two dads and a mum. Duh, you know, this is their reality. And they thrive. You know, every study says now these kids are doing all right, you know, to quote a movie line. But it's just putting the current situation into law. And will there be any specific requirements under this law for who can be seen as a parent? Like, I don't know, will there be a minimum number of days that they need to spend each year looking after the child or something like that? There is no prerequisite with the number of days. This is something that co-parents themselves agree on in this agreement. And it can change over time as well. So there are different types of setup possible. Like I've got a couple of friends of mine, their kids are teenagers by now. So they're one week with their dads and one week with their mum. So there's no minimum requirements, but everything will be specified in this agreement. Living here in the Netherlands, I do know quite a lot of people who have these kind of multi-parenting setups. And yeah, I've seen firsthand the legal difficulties that it can bring, but also the, the huge benefits and the happy families that can be created that said, I still meet people often outside of the Netherlands who think that it sounds quite radical. And I've heard people ask, is bringing up kids between two different homes really in the best interest of the children? 
What do you say to these people who are concerned that the practicalities of this unconventional way of having a family might not be in the best interest of the child? Well, first of all, my argument would be it's unconventional to you, right? So it's also unconventional to me because I'm a very traditional father because there's only two parents, traditional, still two dads, but so I'm also not a co-parent. You know, if you think that children thrive in a certain way, then by all means, this is how you should be setting up a family. And for the real opponents of this law, I think what's most important is to focus on the rights of children. These children exist. You know, whether you agree with this type of setup as a person or not, the children exist and they deserve, you know, equal protection, uh, equality under the law. They deserve for their mums and dads to be recognized as such. Because there's all sorts of practical long-term implications as well if they're not. If you're not the legal parent to your children and you want to help them go to university by you know, sending them money every month, it's not that easy if you're not the legal parent. Now, heaven forbid you come to die at some point, right? If you're not a legal parent, your children won't inherit as your children because the state doesn't recognize them as such. So they will have an enormous tax bill because their parent died. How awful is that? We have to do these things for the kids. And what anyone as a person thinks, they're entitled to have this opinion. The proof is in the pudding, you know, you know, the kids are all right. Yeah, I often also, when I hear people critical of it, that so many children are brought up in families with divorced parents. And that is kids living between two houses. And this way, it's the same as that, except it's been planned before birth and that the parents hopefully get on. I know quite a few heterosexual couples who are considering co-parenting either with a friend or with another couple. Is that something that politicians have thought about consciously? Is the law specifically intended for rainbow families or does it leave space for heterosexual families to join up together and raise children together? No, absolutely. It's not an LGBT only matter at all. In our group, in fact, well, of course, we focus on LGBT parenting because LGBT people were the people who were held back for the longest. So it's worthy to take up that cause. But also within our group, you know, lots of the co-parenting setups are with, for instance, a single straight woman co-parenting with a gay couple. And even, you know, straight couples, like I said, you know, that wants to co-parent with a single woman or with a lesbian couple. So that's all possible. And regarding divorce and conflict with intentional co-parenting situations, which are very different from co-parenting after a divorce, there is all sorts of safety nets as well. You know, like, first of all, the, the agreements that I spoke about. If anything, these families are better prepared for any conflict. And if there's a divorce, which of course can happen, there's an additional security net because there's more than two parents. So even if one parent is, holds grievances, there's a safety net for the kids. It's unlikely for there to be more conflict. If anything, there should be less conflict. When we compare what's happening on the rainbow family front and the measures that are provided to families that have more than two parents, perhaps, what are other European countries doing on that front? I've heard of a similar idea in Germany. The current coalition of the Social Democrats and the Greens, they've actually said, we also want a multi-parenting law. And the same in Finland where I'm hearing rumors that this may be uh, implemented as well. And actually, besides politics, companies are taking a leading role as well. Like just in the Netherlands, for instance, we had, what is it, Volvo, PricewaterhouseCoopers, ING, which is this huge Dutch bank, also exists in some other countries, I think. 
they are actually making it possible for multi-parent families to take parental leave, even if they don't have legal parentage. So there are lots of good things happening. So in the next couple of years, we'll, we'll see some, some progress, I'm sure. If you are interested in finding out more about the multi-parent law, there is a great looking event at Dubali in Amsterdam all about it today, Thursday evening, June the 16th, and Remco is one of the guests. We will put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, it's being streamed live online, so you don't have to be physically in Amsterdam to attend, uh, but you will need to speak Dutch. Get busy on that Duolingo, everyone. What have you been enjoying this week? Um, I watched this blockbuster documentary about the now-imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, called, appropriately, Navalny. And I was actually pretty overwhelmed with emotion whilst watching it, which kind of caught me by surprise. It's a very slick piece of documentary making, as I kind of expected, having seen Navalny's own documentaries uncovering corruption in Russia. The film focuses around his poisoning in August 2020 and the investigations to work out who poisoned him. And it's a really thrilling piece of film that is both very inspiring and quite tragically sad. It's available on HBO Max in a lot of Europe and on the BBC iPlayer in the UK. So go and check it out if you can find it. Have you seen it? No, but I really, really want to. Yeah, you should. Get ready to cry. <laughs> Yay. What have you been enjoying? Uh, I am keeping it in the family this week and suggesting a podcast whose reporting team included our very own producer, Kat Slaslo. Uh, it's an episode of one of my favourite NPR podcasts, Rough Translation, and it is about lunch in my hometown of Paris. What is not to like? It is about the hallowed institution of the French lunch break, the legally mandated institution of the French lunch break, in fact. And um, it just made me really nostalgic for when I used to work in a, a proper French office that had like a canteen and everything. Man, I really miss that place. I was honestly such a mm. fan of the office canteen that people still send me PDF documents of the menu every time it changes. <laughs> How often does it change? Like sort of seasonally. Um, anyway, it's always nice to listen to something that makes you question something that you just took for granted. And this podcast is like that. Uh, I'd never really thought about the French lunch break as a weird cultural phenomenon. Uh, it's a very enjoyable listen. I listen to it too. It's really good. I'll put the link in the show notes. I've got a happy ending for you from Vicenza in northern Italy, where a woman has had her driving license renewed at 100 years of age. <laughs> she had to pass an eye test to prove that she was up to the task of driving and pass it she did with flying colours. Apparently, she can still read a newspaper without wearing glasses. That's amazing. It is. It's really something to aim for. I mean, actually, by the sounds of things, her eyes are actually probably better than my 34-year-old eyes. 
Candida Uderzo is her name and she told the newspaper Corriere della Sera that she was very happy and that it would mean she didn't have to put too much pressure on her son to drive her around. So congratulations, Candida. She's not the only person over 100 driving around in Italy. There are a few of them, as far as I know, but it's still pretty impressive. I kind of want to watch a movie about her where she's like a getaway driver or something. (laughs) Somebody commission that. that is it for this week and I'm sorry to tell you listeners that we're not going to be here next week and that is for a very good reason which is that I'm going to Glastonbury Festival I'm so jealous and I think podcasting would be quite hard there unfortunately because I'm going to be in a tent in a field Um, so next week would be a great week to catch up on the latest episode of our mini series this is what a generation sounds like the episode is called Hannah and you will find it in the feed from a couple of weeks back we're super proud of it so do check it out if you haven't already yes do thank you so much to our producers Katie Lee thank you Katie and Wojciech Oleksiak. Katz Laszlo is our other producer who's off working on other things for later in the year. We are a part of the Are We Europe audio family. For more European audio offerings, head to areweeurope.eu forward slash audio dash family. And if you're lucky, Dominic might do some tweeting from our account while I'm drunk in a field next week at Europeans Pod. We're also on Instagram at Europeans Podcast. See you in two weeks, everyone. Ta-ra. Doey.